Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As we speak to you now, we are just weeks away from 2023. Now, this might not sound like news. It might just sound like a fact. But this is interesting for a number of reasons. Because we are now currently heading very, very closely towards a Rugby World Cup in France with Portugal playing in it, where you've got a bunch of things. You've got an England team that aren't preparing very well, but people think might do well. A few people think might do well anyway. A few people being pretty much me and Eddie Jones. You've got a France side that, again, quite heavily tipped, but also no one's quite wanting to favour them properly. You've got Alan Wynne-Jones. You've got Alan Wynne-Jones still playing. You've got a Springbok side that are going in with enormous confidence, and yet people are just stopping talking about them as we go on, with Razzy Erasmus involved in the coaching setup. You've got you've got a really interesting Rugby World Cup coming in. Certainly do. In the next year. Which I'm very excited for, that 2023 Rugby World Cup. Yeah. But it's a real... The, the one thing I really don't like about Rugby World Cup year is that you've got to wait, like, nine months for the Rugby World Cup to start. It's ages away. I wish there was a World Cup we could watch before then. If only... If only there were a Rugby World Cup where all the rest of that was true. A Coupe de Monde de Rugby, if you will. Where oui? we can dive into so many themes, so many ideas, and so many things that we may be seeing coming up in the next months. The coming year, as we look at it, as we head towards the 2023 World Cup. Well, <laughs> what if I said to you, this was all a cunning ruse, this was all an elaborate ploy... And indeed, there is such a World Cup, and it took place in 2007. That is such an exciting thought. And you know what's even more exciting than that? Is the fact that those games are available for us to watch back. And you know what we're all going to do? We're going to bloody go and watch them, and then record a podcast about all of them. Watch them all. So, as we've previously done, we are going to dive through every single game of the 2007 Rugby World Cup. Even Italy against Portugal. Welcome to the third series of the Squidge Rugby World Cup retrospective. I spat all over my screen as I was saying that. Very nice. I want to welcome you. It's the third series we've got here. We've got through two World Cups before. We have, of course, looked at the World Cup 20 years before this in New Zealand in 1987, previously in the previous series. An awful lot has changed. An awful lot has changed in rugby between those two periods. Like, I think far, far more has changed in those 20 years than in the 20 years since 2003 to next year's World Cup. Agreed, yeah. Agreed. The game has changed night and day. Yeah. And in this podcast, we want to look at some of that, as well as looking at some of the things that have changed, you know, in the four years between this, 2007, and the 2011 World Cup, which we covered in the first series. Yeah. We're going to try and put this into perspective, into context, as well as looking how the game has changed right up to nowadays, as well as just looking at some silly things that might have happened. Because we remember 2007 and what haircuts were like. 
Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you say, with putting things into context, I think it is really interesting that we get to watch the one before 2011. So there'd be a lot of overlap in terms of players and coaches who are, who are about in 2007 and styles of play and so on. So I'm super excited to see what the, kind of the predecessor for 2011, which we have covered in considerable depth, was. Yeah, I think that's the really exciting thing with this tournament. As I said, there's an awful lot of lead in to <laughs> to to what later came in or what would later come next year. Yeah. Not least in the fact there's a very controversial bidding period, which we'll look at slightly later. But yeah. I think the first thing to say is hello, welcome, uh my name's Rob, your squid, whatever you call me. And joining me as ever for every episode of this retrospective is Willow and the other guy from Squidge Rugby, just you don't know me as well. Yeah, you you know. Also, you do stuff for like rugby pass and I do and other stuff. Yeah, I do do that. Yeah, I suppose. But mainly, mainly, I guess I'm like the other squidge guy. I think that's that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome, other squidge. Yeah, yeah. Remember... Does that make you feel powerful when I say that? No. I remember when someone posted when I you know we did one of those early video game us playing video game mm. things on the channel. Someone commented, bro, if I close my eyes, squidge, squidging to squidge, because our voices sounded similar. <laughs> and there was a comment on one of the video, the two videos during the Women's World Cup that used the voiceover on. Mm. There was a comment today from someone saying, can I ask what's happened to your voice? It sounds slightly different. It sounds like someone doing a very good impression of you. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't doing an impression. I was very much trying to be me i don't know why i was trying to maybe you should lean harder into that maybe you yeah. should just go even further in that direction i reckon so i reckon so i think what accents can you do oh oh um i'm trying to think is the is there somebody i can do impressions of i don't know i mean because the voice the choice to do that voiceover was either you or p money yeah and yeah. decided your voice is more palatable and i you know the script was written in such a way that the word bro wasn't on the end of every sentence. That's the thing. And like, I have to edit the audio of that kind of thing. So I'd probably yeah, have to yeah. edit out the word bro quite a lot of times. And I do, nightmare. I do that enough editing this podcast when you speak. So it's all, well, you are my brother. So yeah. what else am I supposed to say, bro? Exactly. I just, I have to, I have to say bro all the time. I don't really have much of a choice. No. Speaking of being a brother. Uh, we were in roughly the same place in 2007. Yes, we were. And we've done this in the previous series. You know, in 2011, we were very much... It was the, the first World Cup where we were properly into rugby rather than watching the odd game, you know? Yeah, I um, mean, well... We were watching more than just Wales' games or watching more than just occasional I mean, games. I, th- I think, uh, yeah. this. I would say this is the tournament before we kind of, like, got into rugby, you know? Like, this is... This is yeah. It was the 2008 Grand Slam was where, like... Every single game of that, for Wales, that that is, the Six Nations in 2008, was kind of like, we're brought downstairs and like, no, you're going to watch this now. And like, it happened before, like, we'd both grown up seeing rugby in the house because... Oh, it's always on, yeah. Yeah, like, we had a father who was very, very much into Welsh rugby. Had and just, the Yes, word. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was very much just into any Welsh rugby that you could put on in the house, you know? And so, like, I walked past a lot of rugby when I was walking through the li- living room and into the kitchen or whatever. But 2008 was kind of like where it started to... It f- I-, I feel like it was slightly being shoved down my throat as like a cynical 11-year-old. But then eventually, I think the Stockholm Syndrome just took hold. And I was like, you know what? I do like this. I do. Ev- I-, I will eventually become a nerd about this. But, like... 
Yeah, so 2007 is an interesting one because I think the players and so on that will be playing will be, barring retirements, the same as the first players I ever remember watching. But mm. there'll be a lot that I don't know. So there's a lot that I'm really excited to learn about. There's a lot, as I say, retired players, tier two players, took me another couple of years on top of that to learn, kind of just in time for the 2011 tournament, which, as we say, was our first Rugby World Cup as fans. Like, So there's a lot of stuff in this World Cup that I'm really excited to kind of like see for the first time and learn about players that I thought I knew about, you know? Yeah, my memories of this World Cup are quite specific, but shallow. It's not like 2011 where I remember it all intimately. Yeah. And 2003 where I remember a lot of things around it, even if I don't remember the games Oh, themselves. I don't remember anything about 2003. Like, Still, I, I don't even know who won it. 2003. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then I was, you know, like I think the difference between me being eight and you being six in the World Cup in 2003 is a big difference. It certainly like, is. I remember a lot of the kind of accoutrement around the World Cup and the marketing and stuff. And I remember seeing rugby a lot around that period. Mm. Whereas I don't remember any of the matches themselves. And I've since, you know, been told where we were when we saw England win the World Cup and so on, but I don't remember it. Whereas 2007, I was in secondary school. I started there by then. And I do remember bits of it. I remember watching one of the games. I remember us watching the first half as a family. And then we were sent really? to bed at half time. Yeah. And then I, I don't came, remember that I, at all. I snuck back down at half time. And by this point, our parents had started drinking. And they were quite uncomfortable with me sitting there whilst they were drinking, but eventually they got used to it and were okay with me watching. Really? Yeah, I remember that from the 2007 World Cup. Because remember that was before the Six Nations that were all... Yeah, like, yeah. It was like not long beforehand. Do you know which game it I remember, was that we might have I don't, watched a bit of? No. I don't. It was, think Wales, it was a Wales, Wales game. Playing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you'll recognise it when we get there. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. I remember us watching a few. I remember watching a few bits of the opening weekend. I remember that being on, mm-hmm. starting. I don't remember that at all. And I remember our dad absolutely losing his shit when Wales lost to Fiji. I was going to say that definitely being, like, wasn't the one you snuck down at half time because no. you'd have taken that and gone like, yeah, okay, I'll go to bed. Still living in a world where Wales might win. Not that we really cared at that point. Like, no, yeah. And I remember my main memory of this World Cup though is because, you know, like, it was something that happened, we would, a fair few times as a kid, we got taken to, like, the rubbishy Friday night international Millennium Stadium. Yeah. Always cheap. Yeah, so you know, our, the our first, or Fiji or Samoa or whatever. The first rugby match I ever watched was Wales 98 Japan nil. Yes. And we were both in the stadium for that. And, yeah, we watched Wales against Fiji maybe the next year. We saw a couple of game, games against Canada. Canada. Yeah, the, so that the, kind of Friday. They were always played on Friday nights at the time. That kind of middle yeah. international. We had a really good streak of every time we went to watch Wales, they won, which wouldn't last these days because those games are no. lost to Georgia. Very interesting that who saw that one coming. Mm. But I remember because there was so there was one kid in school who was into it, and he knew I'd been to see Wales play rugby, so thought I was really into it and really following. Okay, it, yeah, and would ask me questions and would like sometimes ask me for trivia on like. I remember him asking me about, has a try ever been disallowed by the TMO before? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't know the TMO law variations at the time. No. It's funny because that is now what people do on Twitter to me every single day. <laughs> what that one kid was doing in school. You know what? So, but it hadn't clicked yet. I, w- I want to tell you my first memory of like getting a scope of how popular rugby is. I don't think I've oh, yeah. ever told you this before. I don't think we've really? ever had this conversation. Yeah, it's a memory that's just come into my head. So, in so after the two thousand and eight Grand Slam, right? Mm. So I was I was eleven years old. I was in year six in school. So last year of 
primary school for anybody outside of the UK. So I'm I'm still a little boy, but I'm hoping to someday graduate to become a big boy, right? Mm. And during that Six Nations, 2008 Six Nations, I had learned three players' names, right? And Johnny Wilkinson wasn't one of them. I didn't know there was a rugby player called Johnny Wilkinson before I knew there was a rugby player called James Hook. Like, I knew who James Hook was before I knew who Johnny Wilkinson was, which is Mm. a bizarre and embarrassing fact. But uh, Shane Williams was another one. Uh, in fact, no, there would, there would have been four players because Duncan and Adam Jones were yes. two of the players that I learned for obvious reasons. They're really iconic. The hair bears. And like yeah, when you're an 11 year old watching a sport you don't care about and you see two funny looking like fat lads who are just accepted to be really good, even though you, yeah. you can't see that as somebody who knows nothing about the sport. But that's the other thing is like, even when you know nothing about rugby, you can see the scrum going well and get it. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. know, like it's, but, that was an easy thing to get. And especially with Adam doing Jones. I was a homework assignment on Duncan Jones before caring about rugby. Really? Just because I was like, well, it was a funny person to do it on because he had to do like an interview with someone famous. Right. But obviously, you wouldn't actually interview that person. Yeah. And I did pretend. mine on Duncan Jones because I thought it'd be funny. That's fair enough. But especially with Duncan and Adam Jones, you have that thing when like Adam wins a scrum penalty, everyone flies in and ruffles his hair. That's one of yeah, my first yeah. memories of watching Wales is that that image oh yes we get to watch adam jones again in this world cup don't we yeah oh that's so exciting but anyway so at that point right it had been talked about so much in our family of like oh yeah duncan jones is like a welsh legend and so is adam jones like they're like welsh legends they're two of our best players and yeah they're iconic they're brilliant like they're the hair bears you know it's a really well-known thing and clearly this is something our parents had told us and kept kind of like shoving down our throat in a hope that it would catch on and we'd, we'd like really buy into it you know and then there was a point where in school i was at a table with like three people i didn't really know that well but were in my class and they kept like going back and forth, like trying to show off to each other, like, oh yeah, do you know who this famous, do you know who Michael Jordan is? Oh yeah, do you know who Shakira <laughs> is? And then I, I just wanted to join in, so I just go, do you know who Duncan Jones is? And then we're like, who the hell is Duncan Jones? After they'd all been like replying to each other, like, from get- blue. Yeah, exactly. Or like gradually getting like the, the ballpark of who these famous people that everyone was saying were. And then I was like, they're like, who's Duncan Jones? And I was like, oh, don't you know? He plays rugby for Wales. And like, that was me trying to show off like, oh, I know a Welsh rugby player, even though I'm like the furthest thing from the sporty kid in the class. <laughs> so that was my first, first kind of like time. I love Duncan. Du- the thing is, Duncan Jones is the natural fit into a conversation with Michael Jordan and Shakira. Yeah, that's two like, random just, names, right? He just right? belongs there. He yeah, belongs yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, that was the first time where I was like, oh, right. So rugby's not popular, especially not Welsh rugby. Fair enough. I now know yeah, never to make yeah. that mistake in a conversation oh, ever again. I remember I had an Osprey's bag when I was a teenager mm. that was like, it was quite subtle. It was like just a common black bag, but it had like the Osprey's badge on it. It didn't say Osprey's, didn't say like top flight rugby team, didn't say like third in the Magnus League this year, didn't have a picture of James Hawkins, nothing like that. It was just like the badge, which is quite yeah. understated. And it was quite subtle. Nice design. Yeah. Someone once asked me, like, what is that? And I was like, oh, it's the Ospreys. They're a, they're a rugby team in, in, in Wales. It's who I support. And they laughed. Oh, really? Wow. Someone else then said, fail. <laughs> Which shows a lot about, like, kind of 2009 teenage Remember humor. that. Remember fail. when teenagers have said, epic fail. fail. 
That's incredible. And the thing is, like, there's a lot of periods where that would have been an accurate statement, but not at that point, because that was when they had, like, four All Blacks playing for no, them. No, it was, it was the period where it was most accurate, because they oh. had four All Blacks playing for them and won nothing. Oh, yeah, the Sean Holly era. Classic. Yeah. Uh, the, thing, the thing is, I also remember I had a point where somebody had moved into my class, and, like, this is, my, like, year eight, so this is, like, mm. what, 20... 2009, 2010, right? And... He'd moved from Swansea, right? Mm. And at one point, he, it, it turned out he had an Ospreys bag. Oh. And I'd overheard him saying to somebody like, oh, Ospreys, that's the team I support. And I went up to him and I was like, dude, I support the Ospreys as well. And he was he thought I was like trying to bully him. And he was like, no, you don't. What are you want about? No, like, why, why are you saying that? And I was like, no, no, I do, I do, I do. And then he was like, no, you just don't. And I was like, no, Lee Burns, one of my favourite players. Like, you know, like Ricky January on loan. What a great, what a great period that was. <laughs> and I was like, really trying to prove to him. But he didn't know any Ospreys players. So he didn't oh, know no. I was telling the truth. He thought I was making up names. So I was in an impossible situation of trying to <laughs> prove to somebody that I was an Ospreys supporter. <laughs> He turned How out to be an arsehole. That? But yeah. Oh, that's fine then. That's yeah. fine then. Yeah. I mean, typical. I bet. I bet he's one of those kids that's very like, we never should have merged Neef and Swansea. <laughs> you know, I support Neef, really. <laughs> I think he just like claimed to be into rugby to like look hard, which is very yeah, much what yeah. I'm still doing to this day. So. And it's really working for you, man. Yeah. Really, really going well. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't rugby pass you on a dark night in the sewer. Shut up. So, 2007, Mm. right? That's where we were. Our relationship with rugby was kind of about to begin. It was like on the periphery of our lives, but it wasn't important in the way that it has later gone on to become. Yeah, yeah. And I think it gives us a very unique perspective on this World Cup because it's so close to what we know, but it's not what we know. Like, I've watched a handful of games in this World Cup back, but I mean, no means have seen them or even the majority. I I would say, to guess, I would say I've probably watched four or five games of this World Cup. Mm. I reckon I've seen which Wales game is it I think I've seen? Maybe Japan? But that like that I think I've, I explained this on the twenty eleven tournament mm. and like some of the episodes there. I went through a period when I like first became like properly hooked on rugby where I would just watch any full match I could online. This is like twenty twelve right. kind of era, just after the twenty eleven World Cup, where I just went through a period and I would just watch any full rugby match I could like in weekdays and stuff when I was just waiting for, or like in the off season or whatever. I will, I will have to kind of come back to this, I suppose, as the podcast goes along. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think I have seen the full Wales Fiji game back. Oh, uh, okay. I th- there's one of the games Wales win, I believe I've seen. And yeah, a handful of others, but they'll come to me as we go along and I will point them out yeah. in said episodes because I think that's quite an interesting thing that I will randomly watch some of these games and watch them for the second time. So we will, with the help of various guests, go through every game as we head in, Mm. as we go through all 48 matches from this World Cup. We'll intend to get them all out and all done before kickoff in France next year, before France play the All Blacks in September. We've got some work to do, but we're going to try and make it happen. So we'll get through those. But today, we just want to kind of lay the ground for where rugby was in 2007, what was happening in 2007 around rugby. And also look at both the opening ceremony and ITV's thing they put out the night beforehand of like a dinner of rugby legends having a chat. And spoiler alert, it's just as bad as it sounds. It's boring as hell. Yeah, the opening non-ceremony, as I called it. Yes. 
So, I think the interesting place to start is, as I mentioned earlier, this was kind of the first time that we had a proper bidding war for the Rugby World Cup. Mm. It happened a little bit in 2003, we'd had a few bids put forward, but up until then it always been quite a civil thing that had taken place, and I think in the wake of what happened in 1999, where Wales were the host nation, but they also had games in England, France, Scotland, and some in Ireland, you kind of went, well, we just need to start centralising this, we can't do that again, that was a mess, we just need to kind of run this as a proper tournament. <laughs> really went well for them in this tournament, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. So... The IRB, as it was at the time, when we are only going to have bids from individual unions, it has to be a sole nation bidding, you can't do a joint bid anymore, we're not taking that anymore. So two nations put forward bids. With the previous World Cup having been in Australia, you had New Zealand kind of went for, we want 2011, but we're not going to go for the one immediately after Australia. So the only two nations that bidded for 2007 were England and France. Okay. France never hosted the World Cup before, England had hosted in 1991. And obviously it hosted some games in 1999. France has hosted games in 91 and 99, but never been the sole host before. However, right, there's a there's an article by Ian Robertson, if you remember Ian Robertson. I do. Scottish guy who yes. did a bit of commentary, did the Total Rugby stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was like the big radio voice of rugby on the radio for mm. a very long time. Was he was good from what I can remember. In, I think Rugby 06. Yeah, well, yeah. He did a couple of the uh, I see, video games. I seem to remember liking him and liking his stuff. Yeah. He was, yeah, sort of like a stopgap between Bill McLaren and Andrew Cotter on the lineage of, like, voice of rugby Scottish commentators. Mm, okay. So he wrote an article around the time the it was announced that France won this bid, saying England should have won in every regard, and they bungled it completely. Okay. Right? If you look at England's proposal... And if you dig into depth, right, England's bid would have brought in almost twice as much money as the French bid. Wow. The French bid said it would bring in around 50 million for world rugby. The English bid would bring in just under 100 million, bring around 98 wow. million. So almost double the figure. So and what if you happened look at what there? happens in 2023, right? World rugby, there's a lot of people saying like there's a conspiracy and being paid off or anything. No, like what really happened there is the French bid would have made more money than the Irish or South African bid, yeah. so they went for that. Yeah. Like, it's which will make the most money for World Rugby is the one they went for, rather yeah. than what's the best for the you game. You do get a lot of people saying, like, oh, yeah, it's just rigged against South Africa, they paid them off. And it's like, well, they might as well have done, because it's the same result. Like, yeah. it's still that just that they're getting World Rugby more money. So, there's a number of things that happened in order for Ingle... Ingle... Ingle but Humperdink yeah. completely bungled this, right? In order for Ingle to completely ruined their World Cup bid, a number of things happened, right? One of them happened in 2003, which is quite an iconic, famous moment in Irish rugby in particular. I don't know if you know about this, the Martin Johnson incident pre-match. Maybe? In the six, so the Six Nations in 2003, England going for their Grand Slam, eventually the one Grand Slam they won under Clive Woodward, having bombed it the rest of the time under Clive Woodward, entirely the fault of Clive Woodward. So the More one on him later, eventually, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> eventually in Dublin, yeah, very famous moment in Ireland, where basically, you know when the two teams come out and they have the president of Ireland came to do the handshakes? This is ringing bells, um, yeah. England run out, and instead of running out onto the left-hand side, as you see it, facing forwards, sure. so that the president can continue down the line, starting with the away team and work towards the home team, they ran onto the other side and went into the space allocated for Ireland, so they would have been seconds there. Right, okay. So they run out and they go there, and Martin Johnson has said since, like, I just, I didn't think about which side we ran out onto, I didn't think it mattered. I just ran out on one side and lined up. Ireland then come to run out and they realise England are in their places. 
So they all stop and wait because they realize there's an official procession to go on. They can't. Yeah, they with royalty. Yeah. So the referee and like Brian O'Driscoll have to go over and go, can you move down to the other side, please? He's supposed to be there. And Martin Johnson goes, no, I'm not going to move. Like, I- I'm not moving. In a very, you know, that very Martin Johnson, very gamesmanly way. Standoffish, yeah. Yeah. And he just outright refuses to move. And you then have Brian O'Driscoll and the rest of the Irish team are kind of waiting. And eventually li- they line up on the far side of that. So they're basically lined up like, you know, towards the t- like near the touchline on the other side. So there's no one on half the I pitch. see, I see. And the president then does the, the thing where they ha- go down the line. She's like very like, the whole thing's a bit of a kind of farce and procession. And she has a little joke with Brian O'Driscoll. And then eventually sing the anthems and they move on. And England win the game. But basically, that incident reportedly pissed the Irish Rugby Football Union off so much that they refused to vote for England <laughs> the following year. Oh, uh, unlucky Jono, is all I have to say. The other interesting thing with that is that <laughs> apparently there's a few other unions that also sided with Ireland and were like, well, if Ireland's doing that, we're, go- we're, go- we're not right, going to vote okay. for either. So they kind of like snowballed it. Yeah, and it kind of became this like symbol of you know English arrogance and what have you. Mm. <laughs> and I think because the vote took place quite soon after that, it was very raw for a lot of like Irish rugby. This people. whole thing is so petty. I know. The thing is right because I think it's petty enough that the Irish and any other union would go, "Oh no, because of that, we're not going to bid for you in the World Cup." Like that's 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 outlandish that you would do that. And like that in itself is kind of hilarious that it's just like that anybody cares enough about that. But yeah. at the same time. The pettiest thing of all is the fact Martin Johnson wouldn't move. <laughs> exactly. Like, like in a way, it lock. does come back to England's fault. So, so that happens. That takes place. That all of that happens, right? In the end, the vote was the twenty-member unions all voted. England voted for themselves, mm-hmm. obviously. Of the other nineteen, eighteen voted for France and one voted for England. <laughs> so it was a. Do we know who landslide. voted for England? The one that voted for England was Canada, right? Very Canada voted for England because England promised to set up the Churchill Cup. Oh! So the Churchill Cup was created in order to win the votes of Canada and the USA. So they promised they'd play a competition in Canada or the USA every year and they send an England team over and they play this proper competitive thing with like an England second team. Yeah. Some years they send over the first team to play Canada as well and it would like alternate between the USA and Canada played mostly in Canada. Canada were like, that's amazing, we're voting for you. It was something set up specifically to win Canada's votes, hence why they stopped it immediately when England didn't get the World Cup, where it only lasted about four years. However, right, the USA reportedly sided with Ireland in that, that like, small petty dispute, <laughs> so didn't vote for it. <laughs> like, we don't, we don't need your Churchill Cup. You should have stood over <laughs> there, fellas. So then, the it's other, the next thing that happens yeah. is... France offers Wales and Scotland ho- a handful of home games right, in exchange yeah. for. I thought that was weird for their votes. So, like, there were four games at the Millennium Stadium, two at Murrayfield, purely so France would get their votes because they knew that could swing it at the time, mm-hmm. or they felt it could swing it at the time. Because, as I say, England's proposal was supposedly would have made more money even if it wasn't better. Yeah. But the thing we're leaving out is that the English proposal was mad. In what sense? So. The Rugby World Cup in 2003 made sense. It was the first one under the current format of 20 teams in, you know, 
four pools, two qualify from there, etc. Oh wait, so England wanted something different. They wanted like a different number of teams or a different format. England would have reduced the World Cup to 16 teams, okay. right? How many Plus were there in 87? 87, there were 12 teams. 12 teams, okay. So they would have reduced it to 16 teams, and they would have introduced a second-tier Nations Cup competition for other teams that didn't qualify, for like 12 or 16 other teams that didn't qualify okay. to play in underneath that would run alongside the same time as the World Cup. And basically the thing would be that they would get the group stage over as quickly as possible. Uh, so they would juice, like really spread the pools out. So basically teams would be knocked out and dropped down to that second tier competition instead. At which point... Oh, like the Amlin of... Challenge Cup. Yeah, 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 exactly. At which point, and this is my favourite thing, right? Instead of a quarterfinal, which is a great sentence to say, <laughs> instead of the quarterfinals, they would introduce what they called the Super 8. Right? The Super 8 was a league-style competition. Oh, Jesus. Where the top two qualified for the final. Who so in their they... right mind thinks that's a good thing? The best bit about just general, like, absolute, like, top-of-the-table sports competitions is the yeah. bit where it gets really dramatic and harsh. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you're the best teams in the world, but tough shit, if one of you loses this game... That's you gone for good. Yeah, like, but that's that it, is, like that is one of the best things about not just rugby world cups, but like football world cups, or just like things in the Olympics, like anything like that. It's the sheer drama of seeing a team who've built up and are world class and have built towards us for four years. Yeah, then make one mistake mm. and go home. Yeah, like that drama is what drives you towards world cups. It's horrible, but it's what's so great about it. We've yeah. just we've just come off the back of. The 2021 Rugby World Cup, the Women's Rugby World Cup, right? Yeah. And that semi-final between New Zealand and France swung on two teams who were... It's essentially... Would you agree that it's top five most evenly matched test matches I've ever seen in my life? It's up there, yeah. yeah, It's incredibly... the The fact of it was, that came down to... New Zealand give away a penalty in their own half, and then Caroline Drouin kicks a ball. If it goes between two sticks, then France are the better team... And go to the final and potentially win it. And if that ball doesn't go down to it, go go between those two sticks, then New Zealand win. You know, like really, it came down to like a falling out that that Jesse Tremoulier had with the coaches somewhere that too. a few months ago. That too, like really, that's what it came down. They should have just put their best kicker in the in the team. But but yeah, like the fact of it is that like that's what makes Rugby World Cup so great as a neutral yeah. as a neutral. If that was Wales in that position, I would have hated it. Right. Yes. But as a neutral well, to go, this yeah. is two world class teams, and one of them, you know, one of them is one of them has to be the one who gets gets knocked out through making one mistake, as well, it was. That, that semi final in 2019 between Wales and South Africa, yeah, incredibly evenly matched. Then Wales are late to one clear out. Yeah, they get turned over. They give away a penalty at them all, and that's the game. And literally, that's, that's two that's insanely evenly matched teams. Yeah, and. Yeah, South Africa was sharper on that breakdown with Francois Lowe. And there we go. Wales never win a World Cup and yeah. possibly never, ever do again. I say again, like, I think Warren Gatlin might be in by the time this goes out. Yeah, but. that's true. So, yeah, they would replace the quarterfinals with essentially a second pool stage with two teams qualifying for the final. Mm. They didn't detail, I couldn't find anything at least, 
on how many games they would have played in that pool stage. But the RFU's theory was there's about eight teams who make any money that people want to actually go and see. Sure. So they would just maximize the number of games involving those teams and those mm. playing each other. That was their theory, and that would have made more money, supposedly. But I don't think it's for the better of the game. And yeah. also, if you look at the previous World Cup in 2003, you had 40,000 people going to see Georgia play Uruguay. You know, like you've got the That's clear great. side of growth with the World Cup brand and yeah. with the marketing and everything in place. And I think there was a general belief in all the tier two nations of we don't want this. We don't want that to be the case. Yeah. Other than Canada and potentially the USA who were given promises to make sure of that. The other thing England would have done is they would have moved it from the traditional September and October date to June and July, which would have meant that the Sanzar nations wouldn't have got to hold the rugby championship or the Tri-Nations. Of course, of, time, of course, yeah. Which would have lost them most of their kind of annual income because they don't have any home games yeah. that year as a result. Yeah, I don't think like I don't think it is the worst idea having a World Cup in the summer. Like, no, for you know a lot of reasons, but also yeah, in rugby you do want it to fit into that global calendar, and I just think it it generally works having it in September. Yeah, I I think every World Cup tournament kind of improves on the last, as far as we know. Obviously, we've got a lot of them to watch back yet, but I I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So the RFU then, because of the losses, it would have cost the Sanzai unions said, well, if you vote for us and you therefore lose all your home games, we'll give you 20 million to make up for the losses. Okay. And a few nations, including Argentina and a few others, then went, well, this is bribery. We don't like this rugby values (laughs) and voted against them because of that. The greatest force for good in the world. (laughs) Amateurism. Amateurism. So it slowly leads towards this point in which... No one is voting for England, in which they are completely going for France. Not because of anything France have done. France have gone, we're going to do the format from last time, but in France. Because and of Jono's stubbornness in the Super 8, England, yeah. England are rejected they their are money. They are one of my favourite bands, though. <laughs> Jono's stubbornness in the Super 8. Jono's stubbornness in the Super 8. <laughs> and England are suddenly rejected their offer of all the money in the world to World Rugby. They just go, nah, pal. It's it's absolutely ridiculous that they just they pissed off Ireland and then made a few <laughs> mad ideas and they're gone. They're done. Like, I'm not being funny, right? I would definitely choose France. Yeah. And it's, agreed. I agreed. live in England. Like, It'd be a lot easier for me to go there. It's amazing when you look at the French bid how low effort it was. <laughs> they like it they use exactly the same stadiums as the FIFA World Cup in 1998. Oh, wow. Which they'd host as well, and they had a bunch of big stadiums there, and they were going to use exactly the same stadiums. They basically copy and pasted <laughs> that bid and just went like... They copy and pasted bits of the Australia 2003 bid and bits of the FIFA World Cup okay. 98 bid into one document and just went... Ugh. So like, France did no, basically no campaigning outside of other for Wales and Scotland. They did basically nothing other than... Other than just watching so, England implode and they got the World England Cup. England had some fancy board meeting where some rich bald man, I'm presuming, just sat everyone down and went like, oh yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna have this, this crazy idea. We're gonna have this crazy World Cup where we have the Super 8. We're gonna go mad. We're gonna give all the big teams as many games as possible. Go into this really weird league <laughs> system. We're gonna have a two tier World Cup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Meanwhile, France yeah. just sit there and go, host World Cup. And that's their that's their philosophy <laughs> on it? how to get it done. And then World Rugby just kind of go, yeah, that sounds good. We should go with their idea. I, I just imagine like Rob Andrew or whoever. I, mean, I think Rob Andrew was actually campaigning to be head of the RFU around this time mm. in the lead up to this. Yeah, I imagine, yeah, Rob Andrew or whoever it was walking into a room 
with all of the other unions all sat around going, I can't wait to hear England's bid. I hear it's going to bring in 100 million in revenue. It's going to be huge for rugby. On the back of 2003 as well, it's going to be so exciting to see a World Cup in England. wonder what it could be like. <laughs> Rob Andrew walks in. He throws his pen onto the desk and he says two words. Super 8. <laughs> and the thing is, right, yeah, it's going to bring in 100 million. Massive, massive sum of money. And the reason for that is because you will get the only ever opportunity to buy tickets for a Super 8 match, which means you can charge them for like seven grand. Yeah. And everyone wants to see a Super 8 match. Everyone wants to see the only ever Super 8 matches uh, because it's obviously an idea that's getting rejected in four years' time when New Zealand get the World Cup. They don't want Do a want- Super 8. They want quarterfinals. Do you want the best thing as well? Wait, we've not had the best thing? Well, I mean, it's not Wait, the best it's a sliced thing, bread. Right? But that's pretty good. Oh, man, you beat me to it. Sliced bread. So... This proposal, right, was partly drawn up by the RFU consulting other sports, and they consulted like a bunch of other sports and other people, and like, like the the committee that had bidded for the 2012 Olympics or were bidding, I think at the time, mm-hmm. hadn't got it yet. The like committee that had bidded for like England World Cups in the past and the Cricket World Cup, yeah. And having spoken to the people at the Cricket World Cup, right, the Cricket World Cup then implements the Super Six what? in order to do exactly that in the Cricket World Cup. And we don't know which came first. Was it the RFU's proposal or was it the Cricket World Cup one? But it bloody happened in cricket. Wow. They bloody did it in cricket. Is that still a thing or did they only do it once? I don't know. No. I don't know. I know it happened in cricket. So basically, yeah, that that all went mad. France end up with the World Cup by just going... "Mm." You know what we should do? I think when we get to the end of the pool stage, we should also do a draft of what would have happened if all these results stayed the same, but we're then going through to the Super 8. But that's the thing, though. No, because there would have only been 16 teams. Oh, yeah. And teams would have been dropping. There would have been a shorter pool stage, so teams could drop down to the Nations Cup. I'm not being funny. It's a terrible idea. As I say, like... It's a terrible idea. We've just done the the 2021 Rugby World Cup, right? Had 12 teams in it. And it was amazing. But it would have been so much better and more fruitful for the bigger teams, which I know they're not the ones we necessarily need to prioritise. But if there was one more... If everyone had one more game each, would have been so much better. And we could have seen, like... I think it's one of the best parts of the World Cup is where you see the best teams or the better teams putting out their second 15 against somebody who's just there loving the occasion. I think that's one yeah, of my favourite yeah. like brands of World Cup game. And like I would have loved to see like the French second team run around against Kazakhstan, you know? Yes. Or England just fully going, like, none of these are going to play the quarterfinal. We're going to end up playing people out of position and so on. Like, I would have really enjoyed that. And giving people, is, you know, people a chance to just run riot. I think it's one of those great the things. One positive of the Nations Cup, as it were, would have been that more teams were involved in the World Cup. Like, would yeah. have been there. Would have physically flown to England. Yeah. And you would have had greater exposure for teams ranked in the 30s. I don't think the idea itself of that is terrible. I don't uh, think but I don't running think alongside the World Cup or running instead. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. It reduced I, the number of teams in the World Cup. I like the, the idea of... Everyone who didn't qualify, like, having a party that's separate, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having their own, yeah, like, mini tournament. It. But uh, you don't want it running alongside, because no one cares. No. Like, uh, you the, the best will in the world. before or after the world. Yeah, yeah. It's the best like, way to give them I, exposure. Uh, the best exactly. kind of, like, analogy I can use for it is that when they moved the women's Six Nations to not run parallel to the men's, yes. a lot of fans of men's rugby who sort of cared about women's rugby, which was a category I fell into at the time, mm. then went, oh, I can fully focus on this. And fully, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, watch all of this, give it all of my think... attention. Whereas you can do that with people who are, like, 
into tier two rugby but don't really care massively will have that opportunity to then go oh i can watch these teams whereas if 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 I'm trying to think who didn't qualify for this World Cup. Russia against Uruguay. Uh, no, the USA, it, Canada. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Uruguay did qualify. I don't know why I said them. But yeah, for example, like if the Russia against Kenya game is mm. clashing with the All Blacks, it's a no-brainer which one you're going to watch unless you're a Russia or a Kenya fan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of the problem. I guess the theory is it's like what happened with the Rugby League, wheelchair Rugby League and the Rugby yeah. League World Cup this year. Where it did lead to greater exposure because it was all at the same time and they were yeah. all being broadcast by the BBC. And they're able to roll them into one kind of like licensing deal of like mm. you get all the women's, men's and the wheelchair games. So the BBC put, end up putting them all of them on the iPlayer. And more people watched Wheelchair Rugby League this year than ever before. Which is and that was amazing. amazing. And it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it was so good. And like, I stumbled like the game upon it. It was amazing, not just yeah, a thing. Yeah. yeah, I stumbled upon it when it was being televised at like 11 p.m. No, 11 a.m. If nothing else, there's a curtain raiser for like, you know, a big quarterfinal yeah, yeah. they have in the men's or women's tournament, like the running game, as they call it. And I got to watch Wheelchair Rugby League and thought, this is absolutely brilliant. And like, it might sound slightly cynical or it might just be whatever, but like, and like, I don't mind Rugby League. You know, I think Rugby League's mm. all right. Uh, I'm not one of these like cynical, like Rugby Union fans who just thinks it's terrible. But I feel like I got more genuine enjoyment out of watching Wheelchair Rugby League than I did out of the running game. And that might be because yeah, of the novelty yeah. of, like, Likewise. you don't get, like, much opportunity to watch that that sport. But I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And it, it was fast and it was open and it was great. The skill like, skill on the show were impossibly fantastic. Impossibly hard, yeah. Yeah, like, insanely high level. Like, yeah, the, the athletes on show there were just honestly next level. I would happily watch that again if it was televised. Like, yeah, no doubt. However, right, like, as we're talking about the lead into the World Cup, yeah. uh, there was one other thing that broke kind of a year out. So there was a big controversy, a big talking point in the lead up to this World Cup in a kind of the kind of period we're in now in relation to the 2023 World Cup okay. was the price of tickets. Right. So this was by far the most expensive rugby tournament they'd ever been. Okay. So if you wanted to watch Wales play Australia in 2006 in the Autumn Internationals, right? That would have cost you £45, the best seat in the house. Okay. Right? Which, adjusted for inflation, is about £69. Okay, okay. Nice. If you're listening at home in a different country, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do your own conversion Mm. to a different currency. However, for the game at the Rugby World Cup in 2007 between Wales and Australia, the, again, the best seat in the house, non-private, you know, boxes and so on, would have cost you £164. Or two hundred and fifty three pounds in adjusted for inflation. Yeah, that's, that's so we're looking about one hundred and ninety pounds more. Wow, wow, than that's it's costing in. That's a significant jump. And likewise, so for the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup in Germany the year beforehand. Okay, pool games were kind of locked at like the same prices, regardless for whatever the pool game was, because mm-hmm. that's a very German way of doing economics. Yeah, okay, but it meant that all pool games, like the top tickets, were seventy pounds. Which, again, you compare that to £164 to the top pool games in the Rugby World Cup. Which is a smaller tournament. That, yeah, exactly. But there was, So Scrum 5 did a piece on this at the time, which, man, watching old clips of Scrum 5, when they used to have a budget, it's amazing. Oh, wow, like, yeah, back when Scrum 5 was good. For a segment... Hey, I worked for Scrum 5 last month, so I cannot endorse that <laughs> comment. Uh, so Scrum 5, when they used to have this amazing budget, where, like... They would send someone to stand outside Stade de France just to introduce a segment on this. Wow. And like, they interviewed... What a holiday that of... is. 
I know. Oh, I'm getting paid to just go like, to France for no reason. Well, they interviewed the head of like the World Cup committee to ask about this. They interviewed an MP and they interviewed someone from the World Rugby. They interviewed Roger Lewis, as it turned out, who at that point was just like some jobs worth at the World Rugby Union, mm. not knowing who he'd gone on to become. They interviewed all of them about this and asked them and kind of cut the thing together. And they also have a great bit in that piece where they go, "They're being sold on their own on its own website that's been made specifically for World Cup tickets. They made a whole website for that. That's fantastic." But the head of the organising committee for the World Cup says basically our strategy is that we make the games with tier two teams incredibly cheap and we make the teams that are tier one v tier one incredibly expensive and they balance each other out right i'm not sure if that's how it works no but it meant that like the cheapest tickets were as fiji in nans you know the far more iconic game than was australia in the end started at nine pounds so they were like there were reasonable seats available, yeah. But they were all for games that they thought were going to be batterings because they were worried about selling games. I see. Because there was a big worry about if you're a Fijian fan who's got that ticket for nine quid, that's yeah. really quite something. I mean, there's one game that we're going to in 2023 that we got for like twenty quid, isn't there? Yeah, it's like, it's like Nam- Uruguay, Italy. Or yeah, yeah. You're going to Namibia. Namibia. Yeah. Yeah. Which to me is a huge game that I'm really Exactly, about. exactly. It is the hack of how to save money on rugby tournaments is to just care the about the tier two Uruguay. teams. Uh, yeah. Or, or women's rugby as well. Because tickets yeah, for that are so yeah. much cheaper than they are for like men's, international men's rugby or premiership Absolutely. or whatever. It is just a hack to just care about that as much, as much as like the big games. Because I can't wait for that game, that Uruguay uh, Namibia game. That would be, that would be brilliant. Yeah. To say we spent 20 quid on that, like, that's an absolute bargain for what you get. So the other part of this is that 30% of tickets this World Cup were going to corporate seats and corporate you know, okay. sponsors and so on. Right. When the figure in the FIFA World Cup the previous year had been 20%, so that's a 10% increase on that. Yeah. It's 20% of Wimbledon as a frozen rate. Okay. And the, 2020, no, the 2003 World Cup was 17%. Mm-hmm. So it's a significant jump up, like an awful lot more of the seats were being given to just corporate sponsors to do, sure. you know, days out and what have you. And there's a big worry that this World Cup was, you know, we are now 12 years into professionalism, money has taken over. And it's probably sort of maybe four or five years before Toulon and that happens in the club game. But in international rugby, it felt like the thing they kept saying in the Scrum 5 piece is that they're pricing out the real fans, whatever they are. You know, Bloody money. The rugby values type people. Yeah. Amateurism is so gone, all... the greatest force for good ever, RIP. So this was all the kind of backdrop to it. There was a lot of kind of talk, a lot of it about money in the lead-in money. towards a competition that ultimately was rugby. Do you know what? That much we can agree on. However, speaking of money, right, I just want to mention one little, one little story okay. that we'll come back to as this goes on. Okay. So... As we sit right now here, picture the scene. It's 2007. Yes, we are it is. about two, three weeks out now from the World Cup. We've caught up from where we were like earlier when we were worried about ticket prices. We've, We've jumped in the podcast TARDIS and we're in 2007. So we are in like August 2007. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I reckon so. Few stories here. Mm-hmm. One, ITV have exclusive rights to the full tournament, they are showing the whole thing. Good. And they strike a very rare deal with Sky Sports, right? Okay. So Sky Sports will get highlights of all of the games. Right. But in exchange, ITV are going to take Sky's entire rugby team to do the coverage. Oh, wow. With the one exception 
that it will still be presented by Jim Rosenthal. Okay. I was wondering who that was on the opening non-ceremony. I know that his name was Jim, but I wasn't really sure who he was. But I also recognised him and recognised his voice in the lot. So, like, I figure I've encountered him before, but who is he? Well, I mean, so Jim Rosenthal is relevant to me for precisely one reason. And I'm amazed it isn't come to mind for you as well. Okay. You know the song by Half and Half Biscuit, Bob Wilson, Anchorman? Oh, yeah! Yes! So, he is name-dropped in that song. I even went to something with Jim... I've been to Kent, Gwent, and Senegal. I've even been to look for Jim Rosenfall. Found found him on his knees by the Wailing Wall, screaming, Bob Wilson, Anchorman. Where be my camper van? Wow, yeah. Okay, okay, so I do recognise So he's not a real man to me, but he was a, a football and general sports presenter. Right. Kind of ITV's answer to John Inverdale. Been around a very long time. The exact niche of people referenced in Half and Half Biscuit lyrics then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we needed to look for Jim Rosenfall no longer. He was not by the Wailing Wall. He was in France to present coverage with Martin Bayfield. So coverage was presented by Jim Rosenfall and Martin Bayfield with pundits Martin Johnson, Francois Pinar, Michael Liner, Will Greenwood, and Kenny Logan. Oh, wow. I don't Plus think that's... Miles Harrison and Stuart Barnes as commentators. For 2007, I don't think that's a terrible pundits lineup. I think that's no, that's no, generally pretty good. Like, Liner, extremely respected for what he's done in World Cups, specifically. And, I, you know, I reckon up to a certain point, like, Liner was a very good pundit. And, like, I don't <clears> think he's bad these days, even though, obviously, he's slightly outdated, but I don't think he's bad by any stretch, like... Martin Johnson, fine. He's just won the last World Cup as captain. That's a yeah, good appointment, yeah. like, objectively. Who was it? Sean, he Sean Fitzpatrick. Coach, it's a shame, shame he hasn't gone into coaching. Yeah, he really should have. Or at least managing. So, so yeah, Sean Fitzpatrick, Francois Pinar, Will Greenwood and Kenny Logan. Yeah, and this was like, take Will that. Greenwood, Will Greenwood had just retired and he'd just gone on to do some stuff with Sky Sports, which he's still doing now. And basically, he was, like, massively flaunted for being this incredible analyst that no one had ever seen before, using the touchscreen and all of that. And I think it was like it was the first time we were seeing that kind of thing in rugby rather than just American football. Right. And he was kind of quite big on that. It was quite an exciting thing. That Will Greenwood, what a pundit. What a pundit. He definitely won't be saying nonsensical things <laughs> on the Lions store in 12 years' time. It's, biz- it's um, bizarre how long he's lasted. But yeah. if he found his niche in his day, then respect. So the other thing that I want to mention, right, is, as I said, we are like a week out from the World Cup. Yeah. And a professional gambler named Harry Finley, known as Harry the Dog in Gambling Circle. Okay. Okay? He's looked in his pocket, and he's found a loose bit of change. Okay, okay. You know he's seen a loose bit of change. Hey, some coin has just dropped out of that. Some coin. You know what? I should do something with this. Okay, okay. Maybe I could have a wee little flutter. On Does Harry the Dog go on the big, pitch? big rugby tournament that's coming up. No, he does not. He goes to his local betting shop mm-hmm. and he puts down the money he finds in his pocket. Namely, £2.5 million pounds on New Zealand winning <laughs> the World Cup. <laughs> Later in this podcast, you know, in like, I don't know, like uh, 47, 48 episodes time, we will find out whether or not that is... Uh, that is what happened. Yeah. Whether or not he won those I, I don't want to be the guy to kiss and tell. I don't want to be the guy who gives spoilers out to 
to the listeners. And look, like while we're here, I want to welcome back our South African audience. They, yes, a lot of them won't have listened to 1987. You're right. And you know what? That's fair enough because you want to listen to South Africa, and they literally drafted Zimbabwe into that tournament because they felt sorry for South Africa. But you know, it's good. It's good to have a South African audience back for what was a very nice and memorable World Cup for them. And We'll find out whether they stand a chance against the mighty All Blacks who Harry the Dog has put his 2.5 mil on. So the other thing that's interesting is, yeah, it's very much viewed as, from a rugby perspective, it's a New Zealand tournament to lose. Yes. They've basically dominated international rugby for a few years. They've won the rugby championship. They've done all of this. It's This is part of the rugby championship curse that Springboks finally broke in 2019. Yeah. Where, you know, the team that won the rugby championship or Tri-Nations never went on to win the World Cup until the Springboks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it left us in a very interesting place where when you look at predictions, they are kind of all over the place because a lot of people are really buying into the narrative that the All Blacks always choke. But you've also got a lot of people going, well, they aren't, they aren't the best team. Yeah, yeah. They are the best team. In that, the the, non, the opening non-ceremony, right? So you've yeah. got Jim Rosenthal presenting and he calls up a variety of guests, namely those pundits that you named earlier are kind of Mm. you know those two go hand in hand but the majority are saying like new zealand are favorites for this tournament i think sean fitzpatrick at one point says like it's about time we win it again like i really can't see us losing it this time like we've done it enough times in a row he says this is the best prepared new zealand team there's ever been a few times yeah they were i would say that maybe they're prepared for 95 percent of uh, possibilities things that could happen on a rugby field yes. right we'll cover the other five percent later on the podcast but and so the interesting thing is like so the guardian tipped france to win it in their okay. official prediction and there's a few like that the bookies had new zealand's favorites and south africa's second favorites mm-hmm. and france yeah food. france had won the six nations that year they lost at Twickenham, but won every other game. Thomas Castagnier in that uh, preamble said, it's about time we won it, I think. Uh, and he yeah. says he thinks France are going to win it. And he sounds genuine. Like, Thomas Castagnier is often like, he often plays up the fact that he's the one French guy in the studio. But I, I think, you know, he did sound genuine when he said that. I think France had the kind of vibe that South Africa had in 2019, where they were the longest shot that you thought might win it. Yeah, you know, the, or like they were the kind of like I remember talking to Ben James, friend of the pod, on the, the World Rugby podcast that he does. Yeah, or did I don't. Yeah, and he said he thinks South Africa are kind of the hipsters' choice to win the World Cup. When you ask someone, you know, it's like most people would say New Zealand, or you might have like, yeah England might come up or whatever because they were looking good at that point. But South Africa were kind of the hipsters' choice of yeah, you know, as an alternative. And I think France were kind of that in this World Cup. And people were going like, oh, they could do something. But I don't think anyone fully expected them to actually do it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They were kind of the outsiders. And at home as well, you know, makes it makes a yeah, difference, that's the doesn't thing. it? Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Jim Rosenthal asks Martin Johnson, do you think Johnny can deliver? And Martin Johnson correctly just shoots him down and says like, No, it's an entire team effort. Please don't put that pressure on Johnny Wilkinson. He felt it enough in 2003 when we actually did win. Like, it's a lot to put on one guy. And he basically just really steadies that. Because, like, watching this back really reminded me of just how bad the Johnny Wilkinson hype machine was. And he clearly hated it. Wilkinson did. And just every second question being about Johnny Wilkinson really kind of undermined the tournament. And, like, generally, like, the England team as well. And I thought that moment was really interesting Mm. because we've talked a lot on the 2011 series and in general about how interesting a figure in rugby history Johnny Wilkinson is. Yeah. And how a lot of the most interesting part of his story is what happens after 2003. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And to see one of his closest teammates and, you know, a good friend who worked with him and played with him for many years. Yeah. Martin Johnson was clearly worried about Wilkinson. Mm. He was. And he desperately wanted this conversation to not be about him. Yeah. And there was like a, no, like he really struggles with this. Like you can't do this. Like it's the, again, we've talked a lot in the past about. Just leave him to it. Wilkinson's mental health. Like yeah. it's, because he was so driven to the point of just breaking himself. Yeah. And the things he said in the past of like the, the happiest moment of life, moment he wished he could live in forever was the, the 30 seconds between kicking the drop goal mm. and the final whistle going. Because he'd done the thing that he'd spent his entire working towards, but the moment that final whistle goes, like a minute later, he had a moment of going, "Oh, what next? Like I've achieved. I've got the rest of my I career to go like, now. Yeah, yeah, the rest of my life. Yeah, like, he's got like he spent his entire life building up towards a moment that he achieved at twenty three. Yeah, and he's then got to spend the rest of his life trying to live out. It is fascinating. Empty. Yeah, it was a really good moment think, of Jono shoot, shooting him down there, actually, and sticking yeah, up for him. Actually, yeah, like I'm worried about this guy. Yeah, like it's. It's not just the standing up for his teammate. It's a, like, I am worried about how this guy is coping. Just leave him to it. Like, he's a team player. And that is what's... Yeah. Like, the reason why he's such a big name is because he kicked that drop goal. But the reason why they were in a position where he could kick that drop goal, as far as I know, is because he drove his team into that position. Because he is yeah. generally, Johnny Wilkinson, such a generally, like, I would say selfless player. It was never about the individual glory or anything. Which he got without asking for it. He really didn't want it. Yeah. And so, yeah, seeing the coverage saying like, no, don't, don't give him, don't put this on him was yeah. a really iconic moment. You, of course, have Johnny Wilkinson in your draft team as well, which yes. is yes. a big thing. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. We'll see how that goes as we move into the tournament yeah. itself. Uh, also, do you want to talk about on. that opening non-ceremony? Yeah, go on then. Go on then. I was going to yeah. say, building on that bit. So Jim Rosenthal asking Martin Johnson about that. He says, I feel optimistic. I think we might even get to the semi-finals about England. Yes. Which is interesting, an interesting thing. And when he asks Martin Johnson who he thinks is going to win the tournament, he basically says, well, yeah, like uh, probably New Zealand, but I'm just going to say England, which is, you know, I kind of rate the uh, the faux confidence there is going on there. They also talk about Johnny Wilkinson had got an injury to miss the first game. Mm. And Martin Johnson goes like, well, to be honest, like if ever there was a game we want him to miss, it'll be the opening one. So he can be hopefully fit for South Africa later on down the line, which... Spoiler alert, he was not fit for that game. Mm. But he does say, I think we should probably beat South Africa in the pool stages. Which again, we'll see how we see how that goes, you know. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting... Hopefully he hasn't put 2.5 million on it, but yeah. 
Yeah, my favourite moment from it, as I say, it's just a procession of Jim Rosenthal calling random rugby personalities up on the stage whilst teasing they're going to announce the greatest World Cup 15 of all time. Yes. They've nicked their draft idea. BTs. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. It's nonsense. Can't believe they nicked it 15 years before we did I know. It. Selfish bastards. So, my favourite bit from this is they, they go like, oh, and Australia have won two World Cups. Let's call up two oh, of their God. greatest players. This is so cringy. And they bring up Nick Farr-Jones, who looks like a geography teacher now, it turns out. And David Campese, who still looks like a prick. And those two head up onto stage. And Jim Rosenfeld's first question is, so Campo? And he he does introduce him, he goes like, it's Campo, David Campese. No one else gets introduced as a nickname. What I love, before you get into this, is that Jim Rosenthal is just there being just a, bl- a generic sports presenter, right? And yeah, then as soon yeah. as David Campese comes on stage, he just turns into a bellend. <laughs> well, he says to him, like, oh, so Campo, we know you're a big fan of English rugby. The crowd laughs. And then Nick Farr-Jones says, yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst Campese's like, cool, yeah, bloody English, hate them, can't stand them, bit of banter, ha, ha, ha. Which is nonsense. They then ask him something about how, so in 2003, before the final, you went round saying England are never going to win the World Cup. We've not got a chance this weekend. Have you got any other predictions you want to make this weekend? The crowd goes, woo! Because it's a very, like, incredibly, like, after-dinner posh rugby club vibe to this whole dinner. Like, it feels very different if this has taken place nowadays. It would be presented Um, by Alex Payne these days. Yeah, of course it would. It's something in rugby. Of course Alex Payne's presenting it. it. It's that or Big Jim. So, yeah, so he does the nonsense. Uh, is you got any other predictions for you? And then Campese leans over right into the mic and says, England to win the World Cup. That was a fantastic Which is comeback. Very, very good That's comeback. An unreal quick wit from Campo there. I'm serious. I was seriously impressed by that because he turned shit banter into good banter, which yeah. is, is a, is a <laughs> gift. Nothing though lives up to Nick Farr-Jones saying it's fantastic. Yes, <laughs> so when of the... English rugby in general, when they <laughs> he thinks he's been asked, "What do you think of English rugby?" and he's just said, "It's fantastic." <laughs> I love it when when they then go on to Nick Farr-Jones. Jim Rosenthal then just says, "Oh yeah," and so for the first time ever in your life, you've just laid back and let David Campese speak. Which he hasn't. He's stripped in and said it's fantastic. He's answered his question for him. They then bring up Jonah Lomu and he gets a big reception, obviously. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you popped out of nowhere in 95. And he says, no, I popped out of my mother like 20 years before that. It was very good. That, that Again, that was that was seriously quick-witted. I've never seen Jonah Lomu be funny before. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But he's always this kind of larger-than-life character, isn't he? Like, um, is kind of like how he's, how he's remembered. But seeing mm. him do bants with the English was really quite different. There is, of course, just after that, a moment where... They bring up Francois Pinar to interview and the sound cuts out on yeah. the video that we have available to us. And Buck Shelford as well, they also interview, but mm. with, with no sound, so we don't know anything about it. They also they also have a VT, they, ex- like, they interviewed Nelson Mandela for this. Yes! And the sound goes. Yes! Like, they play clips of an interview with Nelson Mandela, and the sound cuts out. Nelson Mandela! Yeah! He says his line about, I understand the power of sport. 
and then it goes. Yep. Then that's it. Yep. That's all we need to hear. It's almost like they knew you just can't live up to this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Nelson Mandela has silenced the world. But yeah, so at the start of the coverage of this, Jim comes out and he teases the Rugby World Cup Dream Team, just the Heineken World Cup Dream mm. Team, sorry. He, he has to mention it's, it's run by Heineken like at least three times per sentence referring to the Dream Team. And uh, yeah, they go into that and say like, right, okay, so of course we'll have to pick from these. And then there is this long montage going through every position in rugby. And if we didn't know we were in 2007 already, we do now because it is soundtracked by Reverend and the Makers, heavyweight champion yes. of the world. <laughs> It like, could have been a contender for the Dream Team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. To be the heavyweight champion of the world, you know? <laughs> and it's, It was what they were singing about. They were singing about who's the best hooker in the Rugby yeah, World Cup. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like they, That song is actually about Sean Fitzpatrick. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's canonic. Everyone knows. He, he's, he's a big deal in Sheffield, Sean Fitzpatrick. But yeah, if we didn't know we were in 2007 already, we do. Like, at that point, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm not just watching the rugby here. I'm I'm having to, like, dive into their culture at this point of 2007. So they run through a load of players. Like, what I've written down is they run through Philippe Seller and a load of other pricks. And then they go, oh, well, to be, uh, to have a good team, you must have a good coach. So uh, who else could we call up? But And I go, oh, no, don't do it. Don't yeah, do it. You know what's coming, don't do don't it. You? Clive Woodward. Yay! The crowd goes wild. Yep, and they ask Clive Woodward, oh, so um, there's a lot of great legendary Rugby World Cup players in there. Who would be the first name on your team sheet? And he bumbles around for a little bit and goes, oh, well, the name I pick first is often uh, the guy that we've already got named as captain. It's like, yeah, no shit, Clive. Uh, And he goes, "Uh, and amongst all of those, there's a lot of good players, actually. But obviously, I'm going to pick Martin Johnson because he's English. And it's like, well done. We are four years on and you're still already stuck in 2003 and cannot move out of there. This is the thing, like, I realise when I see Clive Woodward's face, he's only four years out of date. Yeah. So, like, it's the most up-to-date Clive Woodward I've ever come across. <laughs> it, is, it is. And it's also the, my first thing when they start talking about what a legendary coach he is. Mm. My first thought was, oh, wait, his last assignment was the 05 Lions. We're, we're after that yes. in the timeline at this point. That has already happened in this timeline. And they're just choosing to ignore it two years on, which is funny. But yeah, he picks Martin Johnson, and I mean, legitimate selection, if not for the fact it's done by Clive Woodward, but I mean, obviously Martin Johnson is a legendary Rugby World Cup captain, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Like, so and you know sense. when they ask that question, he's going to say Martin Johnson. Yeah, exactly. It was a setup, it was, and he's in the no room. One, you know? No one was expecting anything else. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They then and, cut to Martin Johnson, he kind of goes, hmm. He looks really embarrassed, he looks away from the camera, yeah. and he doesn't want that on him. My other favourite reaction shot is at one point they cut to Paul Wallace out of nowhere, They've been talking about Jonah Lomu and they cut to Paul Wallace. <laughs> Same guy. And Paul Wallace, like, he looks like he is eyeing up a dog he's about to kill. Like, he looks angry and yet full of remorse for what he's about to do. Yep, yeah. But instead it's Jim Rosenfall he is glaring at. After that, they cut to they cut to a montage about 1987 and it just made me full of yes. dread. It's like, no, we've just done this! Well, they cut the dogs on the pitch, though. They do. Which is... They show John Kerwin's try, but they don't show they, bloody they don't show Fabio Tim- coming Timothy onto the pitch. At all. He gets no air time in this. Like, it did make me think we could have just watched this montage and turned the full world <laughs> Yeah, up. I know, I know. Because it's... Would have saved us so much time. More or less the same amount of good stuff, you know. It still ends with Philip Zeller yeah. scoring that try. They also show a 2003 montage, which includes Eddie Jones looking really sad. 
Yeah, twice. Yeah. There's him looking thoughtful and him looking sad. Yeah. Which is very interesting in, you know, future context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to kind of, I think we can more or less wrap up this dumb uh, yeah, segment. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything I'm gonna, to say about I'm going to really. read out the Heineken dream team sponsored by Heineken. Uh, with who were all probably Please given do. a bottle of Heineken afterwards. So front row, very uncontroversial safety. Yes, it's it. It was voted by the public, I should say as well. Front row: Jason Leonard, Sean Fitzpatrick, and Oz Durant. Entirely fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Second row: Martin Johnson as captain and John Eels. Back row: I mean, Yeah, yeah. Back row: Richard Hill, Michael Jones, and Zinzan Brook. Where's Sam Warburton? Yeah. <laughs> Jimeno was robbed. <laughs> Nick Farr Jones and Johnny Wilkinson as halfbacks. It's an English voter team, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Still on the Johnny Wilkinson high, and in fairness, why wouldn't you be? Yeah. Philippe Seller and Tim Horan in the centres. Makes sense. Horan, yeah. you know, winning two World Cups. And then a back three of Jonah Lomu, David Campesi, and Serge Blanco. I can't argue with any of you it. You can't, really. really. It's all fair enough. Yeah. Like, I thought there'd be a couple of, like, Controversial, too many England players, too many recent. That's it. Yeah, the only one that I look at and go like hasn't aged superbly is like Richard Hill. I think would wouldn't make it these days, even if you're looking at like a classic one. I feel like people would maybe reflect on slightly different. But also, like I haven't seen the 2003 World Cup yet, so I'd probably change my mind on that. The thing about Richard Hill, though, is that Richie McCaw plays in his first World Cup this year. Yeah, like this was a few days before Richie McCaw plays. And Thierry Dusseldorf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there's a, there's a handful of those, but like, what what fascinates me is like, yeah, Johnny Wilkinson is to play in two more World Cups after this. Oz Durant is to play in this World Cup as well. Like, yeah. it's pretty incredible how those guys get in the team with more still to go. That's really yeah, impressive. Yeah. Like, and that's two utterly world class players. Like, there's no mm. no arguing with any of that. So that's that done. That's that segment over with. Should we look at the opening ceremony? So, no, 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 no. So this brings us up. That was that was like a few days before Oh, of course. Starts, of course, right? we're chronologically, aren't if we? If you get to the day of the World Cup itself, as we jump forward again okay. in this, this podcast moving linearly through time, right? Let's say you've got some time to waste before the opening game between France and Argentina and the opening ceremony that proceeds mm-hmm. in, right? Let's say you've got some time to waste yeah, that day, yeah. right? And you're thinking, hmm, maybe, I don't know, I could go to the cinema. Okay, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to know what you could see that day? Yes, I do. So, the US box office this week, we had at number one, the remake of Free 10 to Yuma, which... Do you remember when, like, movies made for adults were, like, number one in the box office? I do not! not just I was 11. Marvel movies. Mental. Also in the box op- in the top five, you had Halloween, the remake of Halloween from 2007. Okay. You had Superbad. Oh, yes. Uh, I've seen that a billion times on Comedy Central. Yeah. Back when Superbad was something you saw in the cinema, yeah, rather than endlessly on digital channels. You had a film called Shoot 'em Up, or you had The Bourne Ultimatum, the final of the Bourne trilogy with Matt Damon. Okay. Whereas in the UK, very different top five. Very different top five in this week in September. Run Fat Boy Run, starring Simon Pegg, was number one. Okay. Which I always thought was weird, because Simon Pegg is not fat. Yeah, I've never actually seen it, you know. But it was no, it was it's referenced fine. a lot at this time. Like that was a that was a, f- yeah. a big pop culture reference when like I was starting secondary school. Who would have thought David Schwimmer's directorial career would take off like that? Number two was Atonement, the oh yeah, 
adaptation of the you know James McAvoy Barry McEwen novel. James McAvoy's in it. Kieran Knightley's in it. Yeah, I um, remember watching a bunch that. Of people I wa- directed by Joe. Wright. I watched that because uh, I did about it in year twelve yeah. for my English, English literature A level coursework, and instead of reading it, I just watched it just because it was a lot easier. And James McAvoy's really good in it. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan's second film, but a big breakthrough. Yeah. Um, got nominated for an Oscar. I think she was the second youngest person nominated for an Oscar for it. You had Knocked Up at number four, which is like different Seth Rogen comedy to the one oh, okay. in the Busy Boy. American box Busy office. Boy. Like, yeah, a lot of big Seth Rogen vehicles going on at the time. Like, it was Seth Rogen time. Yeah. 2007. We all forget that. It was Seth Rogen time. Yeah. We think, oh, Butch James era. No, it was Seth Rogen time. Seth um, Rogen was playing five, Fly Off for South Africa. Yeah. A John Cusack film called 1408. Never heard of it. That's what you could have watched in the cinema. What would you have watched, you given thinking... that choice, before going to the first game of the Rugby World Cup? What would you have watched? Given that choice, I of both lists... Yeah, both I lists. Mean, super bad. Atonement's good, but super bad, probably... Yeah, I mean, it's not the strongest list. The third Boyle movie's probably my favourite of the lot, so okay. maybe that. Fair enough. I'd probably go for one of the ones I haven't watched... Uh, because I've seen Superbad like a thousand times, and I don't care yeah. enough to see Atonement twice. So Fair I think they're the only ones I've seen among them. So, yeah. Do you want to know what you could have seen on TV? Yeah, go on then. Go on then. Lot of lot of very average daytime TV. But we did have, this was back when they used to have kids TV on BBC One at like 3pm when, you know, school's finished. Okay. So we had the 10th ever episode of Lazy Town. Oh my which god. Which had just started earlier that year. We are number 10. Sleepless in Lazy Town. Robbie Rotten plans to deprive Sportacus of sleep with a noisy ball to sap his energy. Oh mate. But that's the worst day you could do it. Sporticus is well excited for the Rugby World Cup to kick off. I know. He, we also he loves Jonah Lomu. Immediately afterwards, right? From the first series of Bear Behaving Badly, starring Nev the Bear from CBBC. Oh, yes. That was great, from what I can recall, of being that age. Yeah. Yeah, Bear Behaving Badly. I mean, I think he was slightly less excited for the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, he wasn't Sport- bothered. Sportacus was listening to loads of Reverend and the Makers at this point. Thing is, like, Sportacus probably just ran off midway through the game and, like, like ate an apple or something. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Nev probably sat through the full thing and went... Bloop, bloop, yeah. When, like, Arambaroo did a big run. <laughs> Exactly. He that was probably one of his favourite players, Arambaru. Yeah, this is very niche. Uh but then we also had, right? The second ever episode of Sean the Sheep. Oh wow. So this is so when Sean the Sheep is This is when we were like trialing like, oh yeah, we're doing a Wallace and Gromit spin off. Yeah, yeah. And Sean the Sheep had started a week earlier. For, wow, wow. For reference, if there is anything that this podcast is an expert on, it's Wallace and Gromit, the Wallace and Gromit franchise. Yeah, we yeah. we talk about it yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Before but, rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sean the Sheep, I remember them announcing Sean the Sheep being, like, getting his own spin-off show. I and thinking, like, oh, that it, yeah. sounds quite good, actually. And it turned out to be a massive success. But is it a, in parts of the world, Sean the Sheep's bigger than Wallace and Gromit, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, like, it's huge internationally. Yeah. Because it travels very easily, because it's all silent. Yeah. Whereas um, Wallace like and Gromit is extremely localised to yeah. Greater Manchester or uh, Lancashire. Lancashire. Lancashire, yeah. Like Blood and Mud as a podcast. <laughs> so I remember being in Japan and walking past a big like portrait of Sean. Um, mm, wow. And I was with some rugby fans from Denmark who were telling me that in Denmark, Sean the Sheep doesn't have a name. That the show is called S for Sheep. Or the, it would translate to S for Sheep. It's whatever the okay. Danish word for sheep begins in. 
And they just don't have a name for the main wow. character. He's not called Sean in it. Well, at least they've learned eventually that his name is Sean. That, that is... Yeah. Also, something that's just come to mind. So I somewhere in the world have a piece of memorabilia, which is a key ring of Sean the Sheep with a rugby ball diving yes. that I bought at the 2015 World Cup at Twickenham. Yeah. It cost me like a tenner for that. It was ridiculously overpriced, but I thought that's quite cool. A Sean the Sheep rugby key ring. It's a good, nice little crossover. Yeah. So while we're talking about both the Rugby World Cup and Sean the Sheep, I thought it was the best time to bring that up that I have that somewhere. I wonder I lost what it, we're getting next time. Because they did a lot of like Astro Boy and Snoopy, because Snoopy's massive in Japan for some reason. Right, yeah. With like in Japan rugby kids and holding rugby balls and stuff for last time. They did Sean the Sheep for 2015. It's going to be Daft Punk next have... year. <laughs> yeah. They've got characters from like Eric Romer's work. Yeah, yeah. For France. To tie it all in. We also had, right, you could have watched in the evening, instead of watching the first game of the World Cup, you could have watched on BBC, you had a new series of French and Saunders, okay. followed by a new series of Not Going Out, because, you know, it's... I'm like, surprised it's been, it's been going forever. that long, but... Uh, series 2. Right, okay. Series 2. First episode of Series 2. Yeah. How have they not run out of jokes for that? They have. <laughs> um, they did it by Season 2. Yeah. Followed by Friday Night with Jonathan Ross, because that was, you know, obviously yeah. before it was the Graham Norton slot, it was the Jonathan Ross slot. Yeah. Guests that night, Kira Knightley, Adam Sandler, and Simon Pegg. Well, we know what at least two of those were promoting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would guess Adam Sandler's pretty funny people, probably by the okay, right time. Okay. But that's solid lineup. Yeah. Pretty good lineup. Yeah, yeah. I might watch that after the record. I think we should. I think we should. And listen to Kira Knightley talk about Tome and, and Simon Pegg running around. Jonathan Ross's office. But, right, okay. Now the big one, okay? If you were thinking, but first, I want to I wanna have a little boogie during the day. Okay, we yeah, yeah, World Cup. yeah. What is currently in the charts at the discotheque if I wanted to go See, and have I, a little bounce? I thought about... I didn't check any of okay. this. I thought about albums that came out that year. I didn't think I, about singles. I have the top 10, the UK top 10 that week. Okay. Right? I will give you a point if you can guess any song in the top 10 oh, any song. the thing is so when i was thinking of albums that i know for certain came out in 2007 right i know that radiohead's in rainbows came out in 2007 but i don't that think they right. had any it, it did it did but i know okay. that they but I, I doubt they had any like singles in the charts there because let's be honest like it's not like everybody's, you know, going down the club and boogieing to some Radiohead in 2007. Why so, not, though? I mean, it is it is arguably their most accessible album to somebody who is more into pop music. So, But yeah, another one that came to mind is I know that in 2007, the Mercury Prize was controversially won by the Claxons with their album Myths of the Near Future because they beat Amy Winehouse to that spot. And that's one that's like aged terribly. Um, because people don't really care about the Claxons after 2008, whereas Amy Winehouse no. has gone down very well in history. So with that in mind, I'm going to guess that Amy Winehouse was in the charts at this point. So Valerie, Rehab? No. Back to Black? No. Is, well, no Amy Winehouse in the no charts. No Amy Winehouse in the charts. Any Claxons in the charts? Uh, no Claxons in no the charts, Claxons. unsurprisingly. Um, We'd forgotten even by September. <laughs> wow, yeah. I don't know, I don't know. What was in the charts? Tell me. So, number t- I mean, like, so when I saw number one, I just had a moment of, of course. Okay. But, okay, number 10, James Blunt with 1973. Oh, Jesus, okay. We had... What about the Killers? They Freaks. headlined Glastonbury that year. No, no Killers. 
Arctic Monkeys. Um, they headline Glastonbury as well. No, no Arctic Monkeys. I keep going. Um, I'll give you two more guesses. Oh. There are Kings two artists who are still famous today. No. I mean, there's a bunch of people know, but like who are still like active. I feel like I'm going way well, too niche. Was uh, Jay Z? Was there a Jay Z song there? No, you're not a million miles Rihanna. away. Rihanna. Rihanna. Rihanna's in at number five with Shudderman Drive. Okay. Uh, Beyonce. No Beyonce. Okay. Go on then. Just. But we do have Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. Okay. At number eight. <laughs> Basically the same person. But the top five. So Shudderman Drive by Rihanna. Mm-hmm. We have With Every Heartbeat by Robin. Okay. <laughs> No, I don't um, know that. Hey There Delilah by Plain White oh, Tees. Oh, wow. that, that late on? And then at number two, Stronger by Kanye West. Oh, wow. Tune. And number one, of course, Beautiful Girls by oh, Sean Kingston. Fuck off. <laughs> Can't believe people ever listened to that song. Wow. Second week in the charts, just gone to number one, having entered at number two. Wow. Wow. I should have thought more about FIFA songs. Uh, that really would have helped me out. <laughs> yes, that would have really helped. Yeah, me. clearly, clearly, I spend too much time thinking about Glastonbury lineups and less time thinking about what was actually like what songs themselves were popular. Gutted, gutted Radiohead didn't make the cut. <laughs> so, should we do the opening ceremony? Do the opening ceremony. We now move on to the ceremony itself. Yes. So the first thing I, th- my first thought was like. I can't wait to see what Paris's second best brass band sounds like. <laughs> and then we got like one minute in. I was like, okay, this is so much better than 1987 opening ceremony. Um, oh, isn't it? Though? So much drumming going on. Clearly really inspired and by Claxons. Still, compared to like some Olympic ceremonies and so on, it's still quite low rent. Yeah. But compared to the 87 Rugby World Cup, it's amazing. And actually, it's a lot of fun it as is, someone that just likes rugby. It is a lot of fun. You have like a hundred really cool dancers, just like basically freestyling in the middle yeah, of the, yeah. the Stade de France pitch, which is a lot There's of fun. Lots of like drummers on the outskirts and stuff. Yeah. And they're just doing the thing. The annoying thing is we didn't have access to the entirety of this opening ceremony. No. We only got the first half, which is a real shame. But what happens is these these dancers and drummers just scatter and then they bring on these four little quarters that make up like the shape of a rugby ball. It looks like it looks like they've laid the Windows logo out. It does. With a big cross in the middle. It does. It massively does. It has that vibe. And then basically what they go straight into, no hanging about, is they bring in a rugby world cup legend from each nation to run across the cross section of this rugby well, ball. Okay, no. They bring in a rugby world cup legend for 18 of the nations and they bring in a former player for two of them yeah but we'll get into the players that they do because but like, a lot of them so they don't are questionable they don't like in 2015 they just had like a player rise up and they were mm. holding a ball and they went hi hello in this scenario in this one right the player comes on and they're like they've got a big spotlight on this like big cross in the middle yeah and they have someone runs across the like the the middle of the cross and they are being seemingly chased by children in matching uniforms with like strange swirls on their chops and matching hats with like a specific color that are all color coordinated so that when they capture the rugby player they are chasing the aged decrepit rugby player they are chasing they will pin them down and make them too wear this hat it's so bizarre it is a bit like a, a like junior zombie apocalypse isn't it yeah. My first apocalypse. These, like, trained child dancers who are just 
chasing Jonalomu. It? It's bizarre. And when the rugby player... And all the players are having to run. And like yeah. some of them are quite old yeah. and struggling a bit. When the rugby player gets to the middle of the circle, they stop and they hold up their rugby ball one-handed to the crowd and kind of yeah. spin it round and whatever. And then they run off. And we'll talk about what happens to them later on, right? But... As the French commentator announces their name. Yeah. And he has a great timing on hit announcing the name at the crescendo and saying them all in the same way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've written down as many of them as I could decipher, the, the players. So the first one that we see run out is Frank Bunce from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You know, legend. Second one is John Eels from Australia. Representing Canada, we have Gareth Rees, who does a little sidestep as he's running out. Gareth Rees, by this point, looks like he ate Gareth Rees from 87 yeah, as well. Yeah, Like, he is, an, as I said, like in the players that are struggling to run, he is number one. No, he's number two. There's a, I mean, there's one we get to. Yes. Then they announce that for England, it's Martin Johnson. And then the camera yes. zooms in and they go, oh, wait, no, that's Steve Thompson. <laughs> it's like, of, I mean, it's, I don't know if Martin Johnson was too busy doing the not opening ceremony to make it over. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he just couldn't get there in time. But I said, yeah, they announced the wrong player. And thankfully, the commentator corrects himself and realizes it's Steve Thompson and recognizes him because he runs out and he's obviously Steve Thompson. Yes. He's a very distinctive man, is Steve Thompson. Yeah. For Georgia, they have Gregory Lapesi, who I am not familiar with, but they announce they announce him. Mm. For Japan, they have Dennis Sakata, who I don't I don't know, and I've cr- tried googling him, nothing comes up, so I've probably misheard his name. Yeah. So if anybody does know who that actually is, please correct me, and I will bring that up on a future episode of this podcast. For Ireland, they bring out Keith Wood, who is yep. thrilled to be there. Keith Wood comes out for all of these things, man. Yeah. He'll be there next year for the opening ceremony. Absolutely, he will. It's like what he lives for at the minute, you know? Like, slagging off Warren Gatland and running out at opening <laughs> ceremonies and holding up a rugby ball. He does it so much. I've seen Keith Wood hold up more rugby ball ceremoniously than anyone. It's... Oh, yeah, hello. <laughs> anyone else. They bring out somebody called Cyril Luste, who... Or Lust, maybe? But I'm not sure who that is. I don't know if he's French. I was trying to work out. Is he? He must be like the Italian. Oh, uh, maybe. No, but they bring out Diego Dominguez for Italy. Oh, okay. Would he be Romanian? He could be Romanian. Could be Romanian. For Portugal, they bring out Antonio da Cunha. Yes. This is one of the two nations where they can't bring out someone that's played in the World Cup. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously Portugal qualifying for the he first He looks time. thrilled to be there, does Antonio. Yeah. Which he looks really, he's really also proud. the youngest and best looking guy in that He pack. is. Like he looks, he I looks. Also James noted how Bond-ish. good looking he is. Yeah, like he's a very handsome devil. He's a big lad, broad shoulders, like slick back. Yeah, hair. like like very very like sly looking, dance, handsome devil. Absolutely. Yeah. For Samoa, they have Brian Lima, who as soon as he comes in, it's like, oh shit, that's Brian Lima. And like, wasn't Brian Lima playing? He in was. The yeah, he was. Yeah, which is mad. More on that in a little bit. I suppose they did. They brought Jacques Berger out in 2015. Yes. He was playing. Yeah. For Scotland, they bring out John Jeffrey. Yes, police officer John Jeffrey who wants to stop the cow. Indeed. For South Africa, they bring out Mornay Duplessis. Mm-hmm. For New uh, for New Zealand again. Oh wait, no, was Frank Burns maybe representing us? Or maybe it wasn't Frank Burns. Samoa. He played for yeah, Samoa. Yeah, he did. He? But they've got Brian Lima as well. I don't know, but uh, maybe I misheard Frank Burns. Maybe that was somebody else. But for New Zealand, they bring out Jonah Lomu, who and. He gets an enormous My God, the presence he has in that stadium is insane. That as soon as as soon as he runs out, it's just like, oh my God, that's Jonah Lomu. And like, even just watching it on telly, I was slightly starstruck by like seeing him running out like with normal people. 
And like I've seen him do the 2011. I mean, we mentioned him doing his embarrassing dad dance in the 2011 yes. Cup. But it was a, as I say, it was he, the whole crowd lost their mind in a way that not even France's representative, not even the first player that runs out, none of it gets the reaction that Lomo no. gets. No one, nothing in this this entire it occasion feels really gets momentous. Close yeah. to Lomu. the fact yeah. that Jonah Lomo is in the room feels just so legendary. And and it is, yeah. you know, what what yeah. a guy, what a player, what a figure. So for Tonga, they have Kudus Filea, who of course we saw mm-hmm. playing in the 1987 Rugby World Cup. Yes. Don't remember anything about him, but um, good to see him back. Good though. to see him back, making you appearance. Missed him. For the USA, they have Dan Lyle run out. Yeah. Who else would it be? Yeah. And now I've mentioned Jonah Lomu and what a presence he had on it all. Yes. Right. For Fiji, they had running out. Did you catch on to who they had running out for Fiji? Yes. Yeah, free cheers. Very good, very Sirelli good. Sorelli Bombo ran out for, for for Fiji. Couple of things, right? First of all, where the fuck is Superboot? <laughs> where is Superboot? Why is it not Superboot? It should free be Superboot. Super super very super good, boot. very good. But Sorelli Bombo runs out. Do you want to know a fun fact about Sorelli Bombo? What? He made his test debut in 2004. Right. So he'd been playing for Fiji for a couple of years at this point. His, te- his test career ran all the way up to 2014. Like, he... He's one of those famous players who, like, aged like a fine wine, as it were. Like, he played his best rugby as he was 39, 40, and genuinely yeah, got yeah. faster up until his early 40s. But they mentioned he's just signed for Racing at this point. So clearly that's, that's what it that's is. He lives in, lives in Paris. Paris, but, he's nearby. So they just don't want to fly anyone out. But to bring out like, a Rugby World Cup so- legend who has never played in a Rugby World Cup, when you could have got up goddamn super boot instead... That's probably the thing. They probably had to save money somewhere, and they got someone who... As you say, like he he'd been playing in beer rates in the top fourteen for quite a while, for a few years, and he just signed for Racing, and they mentioned that in the commentary. And I'm like, if you ever looked at Sorelli Bobo's like list of clubs, yeah, I, I mean, I did look on his Wikipedia page yesterday, but yeah, yeah, for someone that has a six-year stint at Racing, right, in which he plays one hundred and thirty mm. games, he has a very very good journeyman rating, as we discussed in the okay. past. Like he's cha- he basically changes clubs. Once a year, other than that. Right. He packed a lot into his late career, didn't he, Bombo? Yeah, yeah. Great player, by the way. Great player. Oh, fantastic player. Really, really entertaining player, who I'm looking forward to seeing in this World Cup playing for Fiji, because the majority of what I saw him do was either for Racing when he captained Fiji age 40. Yes. Which, as I say, he was fantastic in those. So to see him uh, when he was younger will, will be really, really exciting. So, Sorelli Bombo real head scratcher there him running out like with Jonah Lamu but then for Wales they bring out the one and only Mr Gareth Edwards which really filled me with joy watching him run out he loved it I made such a noise yeah Yeah, he was he was overwhelmed my favorite thing was the commentator who he doesn't get the level of reception that Jonah Lomu does but he gets a big cheer yes He's probably he a, second a big on the on the list, isn't he? He gets a big reaction, but the commentator, like his voice cracks. Mm. He goes, "Gareth Edwards!" Yeah, like his kind of his voice break. He denounced all the others the same, including Lomu. But like, he's kind of overwhelmed by the fact that he almost gets to commentate on Gareth yeah, Edwards. Yeah, yeah, which is an amazing moment. And Gareth Edwards, you could not wipe the smile off his face. The fact no. that he was at the World Cup and getting to run out representing Wales one more time on a rugby field. And he absolutely this milked is... it while he was there, by the way. Like, he really yeah, lapped up the applause and so on. But it was just so infectious seeing him running out. I think Gareth Edwards running on a rugby field was 
that's the thing. Something just like, so lovely. Gareth Edwards was in his late fifties at this point. Like he running was clearly not coming to him naturally anymore. It was almost twenty years. Like he retired in nineteen seventy eight. Almost twenty years after he retired. But as you say, like he's spryer than you'd expect. You know, he's but being oh, chased by I like loved seeing being him. chased by so like happy. ten French kids is something that was just completely normal to him. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was it was nothing out of the ordinary. So. I absolutely loved seeing Gareth Edwards. And again, this is a little oh. bit of Welsh bias show, showing through, but that was the bit of the opening ceremony that made me smile the most, was seeing Gareth Edwards just genuinely loving it. I'd love it if they brought him back out next year. Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine? Maybe so happy. What a legend, Gareth Edwards. But all of these guys go to the sideline with their, like, ten random, like, French kid cheerleaders and just start throwing the ball to them, like, and they'll do a, a mini line out and yeah, lift the player. Yeah. And the first oh, one, so have, like... the first one we see is Dan Lyle throwing the ball, and the kid drops it. <laughs> well, because they have like a child, like a like four or five year old child mm. being lifted by this weird cult dancer group yeah. who've been chasing them, who then line up to like throw a child in the air and part of a cult sacrifice, whilst a rugby legend throws a ball at them. It's. It looks like they're going to be drowned afterwards. Sorelli Bombo looked really uncomfortable throwing that ball in. Like... A lot of them just like passed it yeah. instead of trying to do like a hooker throw. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, I made sure to keep an eye on Gareth Edwards as one. Well, it seems like he nailed his throw. Yeah, of course. Never he did. loses it. Of course he Never did. loses Gareth it. And Jonah Lomu, obviously, obviously, just like with utter grace. Yeah, that's as far. That's I think that's as many notes as I have on the yeah. opening ceremony. Where do you want to go next? It, I just really enjoyed that. I really yes, enjoyed that. Opening uh, me ceremony. too. I, um, I really wish we could have watched the whole thing, but yeah, in a way, the other one was like fine but boring. Yeah. But that was like really, really fun, really novelty. And that brings us to the first game of the Rugby World Cup, which was, of course, between France, the home nation, and Argentina. But before we get onto that. We're picking a man of the match in the dick of the day. Absolutely, exactly. Are we? So, um, do you want to go first with man of the match? Okay, so man of the match could have gone to probably a variety of people. I think Sportacus was great on Channel One. Yeah. You know, Kira Knightley, brilliant performance in Atonement. But realistically, I want to just take this opportunity because I, I think this is the only time... I'll, well, it is obviously the only time I'll ever get to do this on this podcast. Is give man of the match to the one and only Gareth Edwards. Oh! The just incredible Welsh legend. Never played in a World Cup because the World Cup was a thing after he retired. So my man of the match is obviously Gareth Edwards. I'm joining you on that. I Yeah. Oh, I'm overriding everything else. Who did you have written down beforehand? Oh, I, I, I mean... Look, there's plenty of contenders. There's plenty of people you could throw in. You can talk about Harry Finlay, Harry the dog, for making an absolute sound bet. Like, great business sense there. No, he's absolutely nailed on Man of the Match there. Like, he is definitely winning his money back. Yeah, yeah, that's true. His 2.5 million back. Jonathan Ross's booking agent, some great bookings there. (laughs) Sean Kingston, highlight of his career. You know, like, you can't overlook it. There's a bunch bunch of options, really, throughout this. But, man, yeah, I'm giving it to Gareth Edwards. It's just... Yeah, of course I am. To, look, two biased Welsh fans have to do that, don't we? Like, yeah. it's it's a, it's a once-in-a-podcast opportunity to give Gareth Edwards man of the match. Why wouldn't we? Yeah. So, dick of the day, right? This feels... Again, there's plenty of This is completely here. in line with our man of the match selection. What we're probably both going to do here. It's extremely look, obvious. It's a two-horse race, right? 
And well, I mean, there's three options. It could be Martin Johnson for failing to move in 2003, <laughs> but really, I think it's between Clive Woodward and the Super Eight. <laughs> <laughs> you took half of those words out of my mouth. <laughs> Dick of the day's Clive Woodward for me, obviously. Yeah, just for being Clive Woodward. Mate, when we get to 2003 and he's involved in every England game, he's just certified dick of the day. The thing is, the thing is, I feel like I should give it to the Super 8 and split the vote. But also, there's a world now in which Clive Wood was dick of the tournament <laughs> two tournaments. And maybe I can rig this vote. Wait, when was he dick of the tournament? Was that... Oh, no, no. It's just going to happen in 2003. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And if he's a pundit on 2015, I can't remember. Yeah. 2019, actually. So, yeah. sure, my dick of the day. I'm just going to agree with you on both. You talked me into it without saying a word other than Clive Woodward dick of the day. <laughs> What's great is that we're now in a position, this time last podcast, the, the player of the tournament so far was Fabio the dog. And now we're in a position where the player of the tournament could feasibly be Gareth Edwards. <laughs> Oh man, he's not a dog, but he's the next best thing. He's the next best thing. Okay, thank you for listening to that pile of nonsense. (laughs) Hopefully we've laid the groundwork for what's coming up in the next... How many ever months it takes us to get through all 48 games. I'm so excited to a good game in podcast mode. And we start with one, with maybe the biggest upset of the tournament, spoilers, as France take on Argentina in the opening match of the Rugby World Cup. Really famous game, really excited for it. We'll see you next week. Actually, no, we won't. We'll see this you on week, Monday. For yeah. That. yeah, we're going to do a quick turnaround because obviously this is, you know, kind of not really an episode, even though we've done better part of two hours on it now, sure. but that's ridiculous. We'll see you very soon for France against Argentina. See you then. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this new series. Goodbye. Superboot was robbed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.